This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. You couldn't get to John without Yoko being there. She was always there. He'd tell lies. He knew they weren't true. He was a mixture of lots of people. You know, there wasn't just one John Lennon. There was a time when John Lennon was arguably the most famous man in the world. So anybody listening who doesn't know who John Lennon was or (laughs) doesn't know what the Beatles were is going to be a bit lost (laughs) in this conversation. Ray Connolly has written a new biography of John Lennon called Being John Lennon. Ray, thank you very much for talking to us about this. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I want to start off with uh, December the 8th. Uh, 19, uh, 1980, when you, well, why am I, you, you tell me, what happened? December the 8th, 1980, um, a few weeks earlier, I'd phoned John and got Yoko and said, maybe I should come over and do an interview, and she'd said, well, not, not just now, Ray, in a couple of weeks, whatever. So I said, okay. The afternoon, December the 8th, I got a phone call from New York, from Yoko, saying, where are you? You're meant to be here. BBC are here. John said yesterday, who's coming in? And he, or, you know, Ray Connolly's coming. Great. And I said, okay, well, I can come tomorrow if you want. I'll do it for the Sunday Times. And she said, okay. And so I booked the airline flight, and I, I played the record again. The children were very smack. The kids were then quite small, and they were excited. I'm going to go see John Lennon. Ooh, big star, you know. And um, before I went to bed that night, I put a call into the Dakota to talk to John and Yoko. So I'm coming, and I got the assistant, an assistant there, and who said, oh, they've gone down to the studio to remix one of Yoko's tracks. John says, as soon as you get in, please come straight over to the Dakota. And he's looking forward to seeing you again, because it was a few years since I'd seen him. And okay, so I go to bed, and then at 4.30, precisely the phone rang, and it was the Daily Mail, who I didn't write for, but they'd got my phone number, and they said, um, we've heard John Lennon's been shot. I, I couldn't understand. I thought that when the phone went, it was a taxi come to take me to the, to the airport. And so I said, I'm sorry. And they said, John Lennon, he's shot. I said, yes. I'm going to go and see him soon, in a couple of hours. And anyway, so I didn't know whether he's dead or alive. I said, is he badly injured? And he said, don't know. So I got up and listened to the BBC World Service at five o'clock, and they confirmed that John was dead. So I cancelled the taxi, didn't go to... You know, obviously, sat down and wrote his obituary, which he talked about me writing like, 10 years earlier. He said, have you written my obituary yet? And I said, no. He said, well, when you do, I want to see it. So I thought, well, we both left down about 29 or something. I thought, yes. you don't write obits of people, people, you know, like that. Um, when they're 29, but there he was. He was now 14, he was dead. And um, it was difficult. I had to phone my, my obituary over to the Evening Standard, who I used to work for. And... I found it very hard, and I was in tears. And, uh, well, I was going to say, I mean, this yeah. it, it's clear that you knew John and Yoko really quite well. Very well. Um, when did you first um, meet them? When did I first, John, um, 1967, I first met John on the Magical Mystery Tour. Didn't really get to know him. I, I, I got to know Paul first. Didn't get to know John really until 68, um, when I went to Abbey Road to interview uh, Yoko, and actually... That was very successful, and they both liked John liked what I'd written, and obviously, and then we sort of we, we gradually became friends, and over the next couple of years, it it would be sort of feeding me things, and uh, 
he rang me up when he gave back his MBE, like he rang me. In these, these days, that would never happen, but in those days, it could happen. He sent his MBE back to the Queen, and then um, we were on the phone one night, and he said, I'm going to Canada tomorrow. Do you, do you want to come with me? So I said, well, I can't come tomorrow, but he said, well, come as soon as you can. So I went over. This is December 69, and when I'm there, he said, come into a bedroom. I, I've got something to tell you. So we're going to the bedroom, and he said, well, I said, what is it? And he said, well, I've left the Beatles. Now, to a journalist, this was the story of my life, you know. And, and because so, it wasn't it wasn't being no, brought about no, at that point. No, they kept it secret it for a while. Complete secret. Yeah. And I was sort of crumbs. Great story, but I was also upset because I'm a Beatles fan. So I thought, oh, you know, I was sort of torn. And while I'm thinking about this, he said, but don't tell anybody. I'll let you know when you can. I promise to keep it secret until Let It Be comes out next March. So I thought, oh, that's a long time anyway. So, okay, so I promised I wouldn't. These days, I think probably a journalist would have thought, well, you know, it's, <laughs> this is a great story. But I didn't. I just thought, no, I've made a promise I won't. So months go by, and I keep ringing him up and saying, can I put it out yet? And he says, no, just wait till, you know. Anyway, finally, Paul got fed up with waiting for John to mess around. I, I, I thought John might change his mind. I was hoping he'd change his mind, to be honest. And then, anyway, Paul put it out. The Beatles weren't recording anymore. And I rang John that day and said, and he said, why didn't you write it when I told you? And I said, well, you told me not to. You're the journalist, Connolly, not me. <laughs> yeah, it was like that, though, wasn't he? He, he was win a with bit it. mercurial. In yeah. fact, that, that brings us back to the book, to uh, being John Lennon, because, um, I mean, there have been, what, a dozen uh, major uh, lives of John Lennon. What you're, what you're getting at, the, the book you clearly wanted to write, is you want to say what makes him tick. The, the, the story's been told, the recording of yeah. Sergeant Pepper, the, uh, you know, the getting together of the Beatles. That's been done over and over and over. But what you wanted to get at is what made John Lennon tick, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it's also the fact that I, um, most books written about John were by people who didn't know him. So because I did know him very well, I thought, I, I can do this. I, I mean, I really well, did there's been lots of books well. written by people who knew him. Uh, for, for little bits of it, little bits, you know, his, yeah. his assistant here, Maypang's done one, Cynthia's done two. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, there are lots of memoirs, yeah. but this is a biography by yeah. somebody who knew him. And I wanted to, you know, when he died, he became a martyr and a hero and a saint and all those things. And then there was a book that came out that, that, that sort of said he was a monster. And I thought, well, if none of these things, he wasn't a monster. It, it wasn't oh, the, the Albert monster. Goldman one. Albert, oh, yeah. That's ridiculous. Albert Goldman. And it was, I thought, well, you know, it, it doesn't read like John to me. As some of the books where he was a martyr didn't read like John to me. Could, well, John wasn't a martyr, he wasn't a hero, he wasn't a saint. He was a very difficult person sometimes. And I thought, I want to get that across. I want to know that he was all these things. Because he was, he, was, he was a collision of different people. And he would change all the time. He was very mercurial. And he would, he would, he would he'd be, well, he'd tell lies. I mean, he'd exaggerate massively and, and tell you the things, and he knew they weren't true. True, and you know that that's, that sort of thing. But Could he also, persuade he himself also, that they were true? At the moment, probably yes. But then, if he thought about it, you know, I mean, the the, the story of John and Yoko, this great love story, and everything like, she'd say, "We're like Kathy and Heathcliff." Well, come on, they weren't. You know, they had difficulties and uh, that sort of thing. So I, I wanted to sort of get this across that it was all these things. And I liked him very much, but I could see his faults and, and see how difficult it, it, would, it could be. And he was. Great to me. I, it was never the, anything less than generous to me, but I did see him be 
extraordinarily angry once with Yoko. I couldn't quite understand it. You know, it was a, a small thing that she got wrong, and he just blew up. And, you know, saying, was... saying things that I'd, I've never heard said to a woman by a, by a husband or boyfriend or whatever. Just that sort of anger, you know. Well, there would have been an outlet for him, wouldn't it? I mean, from from your book, and I, I think it's, it's, um, it's entirely um, appropriate and plausible, essentially there, there were two... Two knee, two keynotes to his character. I think I'm reading from, from being John Lennon. One is his desperate need for a partner, which was yeah. lifelong, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about his partners in just a moment. And the other is his utter dissatisfaction with his present situation, whatever it was. He always wanted to be somebody else and be somewhere else, didn't he? Wanted he was, to re wanted to reinvent himself yeah. endlessly. I mean, the, the the biggest one was after the Beatles, when when mm. he suddenly walked away from the biggest group in the world, the most famous person in the world he was, to be an avant-garde artist. And he wasn't very good at that. He was great at being, being a Beatle. Mm. He, he was one of the best. You know, he was. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go back to partners. Partners. We start out with uh, Pete Shotton, his boyhood friend. Yeah. And, we, you know, when he, for years it, it's John and Pete getting into trouble, yeah. um, getting, getting fired from, yeah. from, the, uh, from the choir for stealing yeah. the fruit from, from the Harvest Festival, yeah. which is a nice, nice story you tell. Yeah, yeah. Then, of course, it's, it's John and Stu Sutcliffe, the Beatles' first bassist, who was a terrible musician and uh, eventually left, yeah. or quickly yeah. left. Yeah. Then you've well, got Lennon McCartney. So Lennon McCartney, yeah. And that was, that was an extraordinary... They were, great, they were great editors of each other's work. That's the important thing about, about John and Paul, in that they were both songwriters. It wasn't... They weren't sort of... They didn't write together that much, actually. They'd write a song, and then the other one would chip in. That's incredibly important, because... When they broke up, they, they didn't have someone to sort of say, well, I don't like that very much, you know. There's no one left to do that. And to, so to come really... up with a middle eight or, yes, to, yes, or yes. to invent a, a, an intro. That Why should we go work, now with this? That, yeah. was, well, that was oh, great about it. It's not just that, was it? It, it was that they, uh, they wanted to impress each other. There, yeah. was, a, there was the Rivalry. delight of, of, of writing and playing and also, something that, would, that the other guy would say, ah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah. Although yeah. apparently Paul said recently, John, only, only once ever said, I like that one. But John, to me... John, to me, said, yeah, Paul was better with his more classical, in quotes, type of thing. But do you not think that, um, that Paul knew when John approved of something? John, uh, yeah, yeah. Know, John, John might not say anything, he might, or he might just uh, sort of nod over at Paul. And, yeah. and, and Paul would know that's the equivalent of saying, you've just written an yeah. incredible song there, mate. Yeah. And also, yeah, he, he would, but also, you know, Paul never knew his best songs. George Martin told me this, he said... He, he, he needed to be told, but so did John. They needed to be told. When John wrote Imagine, and he played me at his uh, Tittenhurst Park later on, and he said, I'll play my new record, and he played me the other side. I said, well, that's all right. You know, give me some truth. Said, that's all right, yeah. And then I said... Just a bit shouty. It's, it's a rant. You yeah. Know? It's another rant. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, crumbs, yeah, okay. And then I said, well, what's on the other side? And he played me this thing that's began with a nice piano, and... Imagine this, imagine that. So, shouldn't that be the A side? And he said, Yoko, Ray thinks imagine it should be the A side. <laughs> she said, Oh, yeah, I like that one too. Because he knew all along what going to be the A side was. It, was. it was the name of the album, but he was just trying it out on me to see, probably. Or to test you. Maybe. To test me and test himself. And to test the song. Because maybe. if I'd said, Yeah, it's all right, he'd have thought, Oh, crumbs, m maybe not, you know? So. In this partnership with, with Paul, for, for me, for, for John seems to have been driven by jealousy and competition as well. But there must have been, 
there must have been more to it than that. I suppose it's, it's like being in the army, isn't it? You go through so much together yeah. to become famous yeah. that even, even if, you're, if you're insanely jealous of Paul writing Hey Jude or something, you've still got such a bond. It was a bond and they could never get away from it. And the, the, the awful truth is that they were never as good without each other. You know, it's just true. And, you know, I know Paul will hate me saying this, but it's true. They weren't as good because they had that bond and they understood each other and, you know, they'd put up with each other. So it must have been murder. Just terrible for Paul when John suddenly wanted Yoko there all the time. And John and Paul couldn't, couldn't work with her there, couldn't write songs with, with Yoko there because he'd want to put, a, as he said, he, he'd want to put on a, um, a harmony, perhaps, and think, well, it'll sound soft. And he didn't like asking. Which was the Beatles? The great thing about the Beatles is they had this fantastic harmony. John and Paul, Paul singing. And that's the third. right. In the later songs, there's, there's much less no? uh, singing in harmony. Paul Backing sing. vocals, yes, yeah? but no harmony. But that, that sort and of. And the firm. great, the great Beatles sound was when Paul would sing a third over John, you know, and it was good. They got that from the Everly Brothers, but the Everly Brothers sounded like one voice. But John and Paul didn't. You could tell the two voices apart. You can always tell which one it is. And yeah, that's exciting. That was really exciting. And that was the Beatles sound. And John would say that Paul and me were the Beatles. It's a bit unfair. But he, I mean, he said it very often to me. So, But that was when he was going through that stage of being cross about George Harrison having got a big hit with All Things Must Pass. <laughs> John's album, the first album, it wasn't doing so well. But, I mean, well, it was it very uncompromising. Good. You mean Plastic Ono Band, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the one that was incredibly spare. It? it was a wonderful album, yeah. uh, but it was very intense and raw yeah. and uh, not, not really pop. It wasn't pop, no. And uh, that's why when he did Imagine, it, he sort of softened it up and had all these strings and stuff put on it. But it was a, I thought that was his best album, to be honest, Plastic Ono Band. Yoko. Yeah, we need to talk about Yoko. Is but before we talk about the the her as the final partner, here, here's a question I always wanted to ask somebody who knows her: What's she like? I think hard, she's almost harder than any famous person to put your finger on if you don't if you've never met her. She's incredibly ambitious for herself, and she's the most. I suppose, in a way, self-obsessed person, or that's not quite fair, not quite right. She's, she's, she really thinks that she, or thought then, when I knew her, she was, she was a great artist who no one had discovered. And oh, you've got a quote from John about that, that yeah, she's yeah, the world's most famous we're in unknown artist. Syracuse, when he told me that, yeah, and I thought, yeah, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's incredibly manipulative. And what she wants, she gets, you know, and she doesn't give in. She just carries on and on and on. Um, at first, I mean, he was desperately in love with her, obsessed with her. Um, and, of course, they were both doing heroin at the time. So, you know, that thing about... Oh, the family that fixes together stays yes. together. Yeah, yeah, all that. Um, what she like? She was... I got on with her very well for quite a long time. Um... She, she, you know, he would joke about her. I like that. John would joke about Yoko. You never got that in the papers. It, it was always this miserable woman. But actually, she was, you know, she enjoyed being teased. He teased her a lot. She giggles a lot in when she giggles. when they're on, yeah. you know, on yeah. tape. And, uh, she was all those things. But at the same time, she's incredibly self-centered. Um, and she really does believe that she is a great artist. I don't know whether she is or not. I would say probably, in my opinion, is not worth a lot. She probably, probably isn't. 
but she thinks she is. Let's talk a bit more about their uh, relationship. You touched on it earlier and the extent to which they, they tried to present this sort of uh, Romeo and Juliet thing to the, to the world. Uh, but it wasn't like that at all. It was a, re- a really fraught marriage, wasn't it? It wasn't at first. When they first got married, they were inseparable. You couldn't get to, you couldn't get to John without Yoko being there. She was always there. Uh, it's very, very difficult. And when I happened to accidentally mention uh, a previous lover of his, not knowing they'd been lovers, he took me aside and said, don't mention that woman again in front of Yoko. We both told each other all about our you know, important lovers, and I don't want to have to go through it again with them. So I said, okay. Because I didn't know. Um, so, yeah, they, they, were, they were incredibly close, but then, you know, they were just too close, too long. And eventually, John got drunk one night at a party in New York and, and had a fling, had, a, had sex with a girl who was there. And Yoko yeah. told me this. And the thing, funny thing was, it was, in, it, it was actually, they did it in a party and where all the coats were. And people couldn't get the coats to go home because Johnny, John and this girl. So everybody knew. So Yoko was humiliated knew. because... Totally. And then, and because then, everybody was... Because I rang up to say about something. I forget what it was, and she sort of said, oh, John's not here. It's with May Pang in... Um, May Pang wasn't the girl. It was another girl. It's with, it, it's with May in uh, Los Angeles. I, I put them together, you know. Well, let's talk about that as well, because yeah. that, that's an amazing story. Yeah. It, it, we, we've got this... She was a, an assistant, firstly, to Alan Klein, and then she was an assistant to John and Yoko. Yoko makes a, a decision, effectively, to pimp her out to John... So that to, to sort of keep him uh, away from from the, the the other women or something, so that she could have him back when she was ready. It seemed that way, didn't it? It was, you know, it was it, it was amazing when she told me. I couldn't. Uh, yeah, that's that's what she did. She she asked me, you know, John likes you, you like John. Why don't you know John should maybe start seeing somebody else? Why why isn't it, why she was about twenty two? She was only a kid, oh, wasn't she? And she was really nice. I mean, she's just a nice, sweet girl. Eventually married Tony Visconti, I think, did she? Yeah, yeah. And divorced since. Yeah, uh, but she was she was smashing. Um, I I known her here and in New York, and she's lovely. And um, I was still astonished because she wasn't the sort of girl that we imagine would end up with John Lennon. You know, uh, she's just nice. And um, but May liked rock and roll, and John was in a way, retreating from his avant-garde thing for a bit, getting back into rock and roll. He did a rock and roll album with, with May. So mm. it's that thing. All of a sudden, he's single at the age of, I don't know what he was, 30-odd. Uh, he's single, mm. 35, 34, and he's got a new girlfriend, and it's like being 18 again. And that's what he said, and it's really exciting. Uh, and he can talk about rock and make, and make rock records and those things, where Yoko could never talk about rock music. Just, she, she just couldn't. Um, Funny story, we were once in a car in upstate New York in the back, and John and I were singing, you know, Buddy Holly hits, like that of the day and all these sort of things. And I could see Yoko getting more and more bored because she, she wasn't involved. You know, she liked being involved in everything, and she wasn't involved. And I said to like, maybe baby, one, you know, another one. And John said, looking thing, said, no, um, I'm not a jukebox, you know. So we've got to finish that. So... But, you know, it was that kind of thing. Uh, but they had this sort of strange, obsessive relationship. And when it went wrong, it went very, very wrong. It seems, I mean, it seems uh, terribly manipulative, because not only did she set, 
done up with me, thanks. He then finished it, uh, and and he was still seeing her. Uh, I mean, yeah. one of the stories that's new to me in your book is um, is uh, that John was then cheating on May Pang, and Yoko was covering for him. Yeah. That, that, I think I, I'm quoting you when you say it's unusual yeah. for a wife to cover up a husband's infidelity with his mistress. It is a bit, yeah, yeah, but that's what happened. Um, but you know, when when John was with May, yeah, he wasn't faithful ever to her. And Yoko knew, but Yoko would ring every day to see what's going on. And they were 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles. And, and, and Yoko was insisting to the world that John was ringing her. Ah, uh, not true, though. I mean, he, he would have done. He certainly would have done. <laughs> if she left him alone for 20 minutes. Yoko, <laughs> Yoko was, you know, she was... Yoko likes control. She always likes... You know, she'd be the one who would organise all the flights for whoever, for me to go out there, all these things. She'd ring up. She was the one who controlled... And she's good at it. And also, she then became his manager, in, in effect. And she was his manager. She was his representative at Apple. And she'd come over for the, for the meetings. John wouldn't want to come. She'd be there. And so um, he needed her. You know, she was like his mother. She was, she was not only... He called her mother as well. He called her mother. She wasn't just his, his girlfriend or his wife or whatever. Later on, she became mother. She became... She ran the home. She ran... You know, everything. She did the deals, did the deals, you know, everything. You and, tell, and he let her. You tell a story that, um, that Yoko's uh, manipulations put the kibosh on John working with Paul, that Paul wanted to work with him, as we know, yeah. in the 70s, and that uh, Yoko either deliberately or, or unwittingly put the kibosh on that. And it occurred to me, Yoko's literally the only person in the world who wouldn't have liked to see John and Paul working together again. Yeah, well, because that would be, that would be dangerous for her, for her relationship with John. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, Yoko, uh, no, Paul had said, he was going to go down to New Orleans to record um, something, an album, and said to John, do you want to come? And John, you know, we're not sure, and said to May, she said, are you kidding? Of course you're going to go. Of course you should go. May Bang was yeah. a huge fan. Yeah. She wanted it. Yeah. yeah. And so, but then, you know, one way or another, Yoko got John back and he never went. And it's a tragedy, really, because what he needed was someone who he could talk to, someone who he could work with. He didn't, he, he didn't have any friends, you know, not real friends. It was, for the next five years, from sort of 75 to 1980, he was stuck in, in the Dakota building, in this, you know, huge apartment and... But he was by himself. And Yoko, Mick Jagger would say, you just couldn't get past Yoko to get to him. Um, he, he wrote me a couple of letters. And they were, you know, they were the funny John, you know, all those things. But other people would say, well, you just couldn't get close to him. How toxic was the relationship? I mean, did, John, John and Yoko. I, 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 in fact, there are rumours that uh, in, in 1980, when he was murdered, that uh, the, the marriage was on the rocks again, and that you know, divorce was in the air. Um, but what's what's your feeling? What's your? Opinion? I don't know about that. I, I wasn't there. Um, it, you know, how close were they? They were. I I think John needed Yoko more than she needed him. But she needed him for fame and the incredible wealth and these things. And John needed her because he needed something secure and solid in his life. You know, he, he had no friends. You know, he, he, Brian Epstein wasn't there. He, he never had a mother. Mimi's an old lady. He's, you know, he's, he's broken with Paul. He's broken with the Beatles. You know, who's going to be his mate? And yet Yoko had to be, do that job in, in one way. Um, and be a wife and everything and look after him and she did 
she did the business side extremely well, you know, she, because um, she was ho hopeless with money completely. And she was good at that. Um, how, how toxic was it? I don't know if it was toxic. I, 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 I just think that he was, I've always, you know, I feel sorry for him. At the end of the book, when I was writing the book, I felt, poor John. He didn't deserve this the way, I mean, didn't deserve the way he ended up, obviously. He didn't deserve to be stuck in the Dakota building, doing drugs, pretending that he's looking after the little boy. Really, there were other people to do that. There were a lot mm. of people there. And, and he boasted about uh, breaking bread. And yeah. you speculate, and I'm sure you're right, that he did it like twice. Right, yeah, I mean... <laughs> He wasn't a cook. He wasn't. A, wasn't a chef. He, you know. he was very clumsy with uh, practical things a lot, wasn't he? he was he sort of opposite of Paul McCartney? Useless at anything electrical. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you go to him. He'd say, "I want to play a record to you," and he couldn't make, make the hi-fi work. Things like that, you know. It's suggested that the reason the Beatles had backward tapes on the on Revolver <laughs> and Sergeant Pepper is that he was so incompetent that he traded the mm. tape backwards yeah. one day and went, "Oh, that sounds good." He may have been stoned or something at the same mm. time. Mm. But, um, so did you like him? I liked him a lot, um, but I was very, very aware that, you know, it was a, was he, people say, were you friends? Well, we were friends, yeah. But, you know, to be friends with a huge star like that isn't the same as being, me and you being friends, mm -hmm. for instance. Because, you know, um, big stars, if they, have a, a, if they have a baby or something, and the child is difficult during the night, there's someone to look after it, you know, mm. for you and me. You get out of bed and you look after yourself. Now, I'm not saying John wouldn't have done, but it's that kind of thing. I knew John's family, John very well, Yoko well, um, all that, and later on Cynthia well. John didn't know my family, so that's the difference. Mm -hmm. He knew me very well. He had quite a lot of unpleasant sides to him. He's he, you, the mocking of the of the afflicted, and that fantastically, brilliantly cruel tongue that he could, mm. and 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 the selfishness he could drop people. And look what he did to Julian, who he, yeah, he terrible. neglected. Um, yeah, he did. Uh, I think he, he must as, have regretted. As a parent. Well, he seems to have gone though with with Sean. He seems to have said, "I can do better this time. I'll 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 start over." It was just like starting over. He did, but in a way that's. Because when Julian was there, that was even more cruel because Julian suddenly sees how John behaves towards Sean and Julian had got none of this, which is it's terrible, really. I mean, he could be very cruel. John could be very cruel. very cruel to Cynthia when they broke up, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, he offered her, I think, £100,000 and said, that's not like winning the pools for you. You're not worth any more. Which is an, an amazing thing to say to you a woman. You don't say that, that to person. Firstly, you, you were married to, bore your children. Doted on. And you were in love with, Mad which he was. Madly he? in love with yeah. her. But, he, he, you know, that's Johnny could say some cruel things. And then have nothing to do with people. Um, although, again, w w we talk about this. You were saying he'd, he'd written new letters while he was in yeah. the Dakota in the, those final yeah. years. Um, Hunter Davis edited a, uh, a book recently of his letters yes, and, and postcards. What's really interesting about that is how down-to-earth John Lennon is. He's this big, huge megastar. Yeah. He's this uh, famous weirdo, all the baggism, all the hair and everything. And, yeah, he, he obviously had those sort of normal human relations in him. Yeah that he expressed by writing letters. He didn't actually go and visit anybody because he was too lazy. No, but he, he did like writing letters. He always did like writing. He'd write postcards and things, to Ringo forever, all these things. Mm -hmm. he, he, that was that period, though, when the Beatles would go away to Hamburg and they'd all write letters home. And we all did this. And it, mm -hmm. uh, anyway, that's lost. We've all lost that on that. But it was, so he did write more than you think. And people, he'd write to fans. He'd just write back to them. 
he fans like, oh, I'll write to him, you know, whoever it is, you know. Because he liked writing, yeah, he did, he, he liked, liked writing, writing didn't he? Always, and, when he was he a little boy, words. he did. He loved words, he loved mm. playing with words. Mm. Um, it was, yeah, it, it was, he was a mixture of lots of people. You know, there wasn't just one John Lennon. And you We're back him, to that reinvention thing, wandered, aren't we? He, he was always trying to be somebody... Else. In fact, Paul McCartney was, used to say that he, he was shy of LSD because people said you might not come back the same person. And for John, that was, that was an attraction. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, he didn't come back the same person in John's case. You think so, that uh, he I fried think, his mind? You know, when I was on the Evening Stand in the, in the late 60s, and um, I remember Charles Winter, the editor, saying to me, is he cracked? Because he's doing so many extraordinary, silly things, you know? Is he cracked? I said, no, I don't think so. He seems very sensible when I'm with him. But then he'd, he'd do something like making a film of his penis mm -hmm. in erection and then indeed you mess Yeah, think, but now, now you're back this? to the Yoko thing. He, was, yeah, he yeah. was trying to impress Yoko with yes. how avant-garde yeah. he was, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah, And, of course, he, he <laughs> yes, he put himself on the Two Virgins album. He and Yoko were full frontal nude, um, which <laughs> was, I think, a first. Yeah, I'm sure it was a first. It was a terrible record. And it may have been, it may have been the last two, actually. It was a terrible yes. record. But, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't see these records. I didn't like Revolution Number no. 9 on the White Album. Mm -hmm. remember Paul bringing me about that and talking to me about that. And Paul was sort of saying, well, he didn't like it either. But John was insistent. Mm -hmm. And Paul was saying, I don't think it should be on the album. It's, it's not, you know. It's not a Beatles record. It's not a Beatles yeah. record. But anyway, John was insistent. And he, 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 would, he was obsessed with treating Yoko as as big an artist as he was, and as, as important an artist as he was. And, you know, because that's what she wanted. And there's, mm. you know, there's those stories about how, how uh, they had a car accident and she wrenched her back and suddenly she'd be, she'd be at Abbey Road in the studio for a Beatles session on a, inside a bed. And George Martin said, oh, my God, she's in a bed now. And with a microphone with suspended a microphone. so she could yeah. comment on what they yeah, were doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you always have a... She always had to have her say. I mean, one of the most damning things about her, actually, and it's not being, I don't want to be uncruel about it, I don't want to be cruel about it, but unkind, but she did say, there's that film, that Imagine film, mm. and you see John and, and uh, George and whoever else uh, singing something, and she sort of becomes very critical of the others. She says, you're okay, John, it's the others aren't doing very well. And I think, hang on, these guys are professional musicians. Yeah, it was Nicky Hopkins um, and Alan yeah. White. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, but, and he said, yeah, okay, you're, you're okay, we'll fix it. Okay, lads. But he said, she didn't get it. She didn't get the fact that she'd been incredibly rude to professional people doing their job. Yeah, but Yoko never imagined that there was anything she wasn't up to doing. I mean, no, she, no. she, you know, she, she pitches in to make records with John Lennon yeah. as though they were equals. Yeah, she thought, well, she thought they were e equals. She may have thought she was, she may have thought she was more than equal in an intellectual sense. I think she, she was very well read. Know. She was very, she's very intelligent. Mm. Very yeah, well Donald says that she was uh, his intellectual superior, but he was vastly her artistic superior. So, well, I think so, but you know, we may be wrong. Yeah. I mean, we may be just a couple of old Beatles fans, and there may be. I think we're that. <laughs> there may, there may be. You certainly are, and there may be art historians, you know, who will say, no, this woman will be remembered for the rest of eternity. I suspect not. Ray Connolly, thank you very much. I really enjoyed being John Lennon. I would have loved to be John Lennon. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have loved being John Lennon. But I, I enjoyed reading it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Being John Lennon by Ray Connolly is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson at £20. A bargain. Why pay more? That was the Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>